together to the book of Genesis once more, chapter 38. Our text for the sermon tonight will be the first 11 verses of chapter 38 as we continue the story of Judah, but we'll read through the chapter. This is the Word of God. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son, and called his name Shelah. And he was at Kizeb when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass, when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah my son be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted, and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her, and covered her with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife." When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet, and bracelets, and staff. And Judah acknowledged them, and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah my son. And he knew her again no more. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. 
And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Pharez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand. And his name was called Zara. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. As I said, the text is verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read that a second time. And beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are quite familiar with the events of the life of Joseph after he was sold into Egypt. The first place that Joseph will be brought to is the house of Potiphar. There Joseph will quickly rise to become the head slave over all the affairs of Potiphar's house. And he will show his continued faith in God by his fruitful life. And God will bless him everywhere that he goes. A fair amount of time will pass also before Joseph is eventually elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh. There will be years spent in the house of Potiphar and then more years spent in the prison of the king as a captive. Before Judah ever again sees Joseph, whom he sold into slavery, Joseph will mature well into adulthood. But what was going on in Canaan? as all of these events in the life of Joseph were unfolding far away in the land of Egypt. Well, Genesis 38 fills us in on the events of Judah's life in Canaan after Joseph was carried away into slavery. Last we saw, Judah and his brothers came home to a father who was utterly devastated by grief. Did Jacob suspect foul play in the disappearance of Joseph? Did Jacob really believe the story of the brothers that Joseph had been devoured by some wild animal? Whatever Jacob thought, he refused to take off his sackcloth and ashes, and he was determined to take his sorrow with him to the grave. And it's in this context, then, that Judah decides to hit the road, according to verse 1. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. If Judah's conscience was troubling him about his part in selling Joseph and deceiving Jacob, leaving his brothers, which was also leaving his father's house, was Judah's way of hardening his heart and searing his conscience. Now, if Judah was a reprobate, that's the last we would ever hear of him. Judah would be absorbed into the worlds, and he would perish far from God, along with his hard heart and his seared conscience. But we know that's not the end of the story for Judah. This is a story of redemption, and God is going to seek and to save this lost sheep. And that in a surprising way. But before God does that, he's going to let Judah have his own way for a while. And he's going to allow Judah to reap the consequences of having his own way. So let's look together at the story of Judah among the Canaanites. That's the theme for the sermon this evening, Judah among the Canaanites. First, we will notice that this is a union that was not blessed by God, a union, of course, with this Canaanite woman, but also more broadly, a union with the people of the land of Canaan. And then secondly, we'll notice that the family that came out of this union was a family under judgment. And then finally, we'll conclude where the text concludes that this man Judah as a result of all of these events, is a man harder than ever in his heart under the grip of unbelief. Judah among the Canaanites, first a union, not blessed. Secondly, a family under judgment. Finally, a man in the grip of unbelief. 
Judah's first action after leaving his brothers was to make friends with Hira, the Adulamite. Hira was from the city or town called Adulam, which was in the lowlands of Canaan. Jacob's tent was pitched in the higher elevation region around Hebron. So when Judah left his brothers, literally he went down from them into the lowlands to the town or city of Adullam. It was a physical descent that mirrored his spiritual descent, which was further and further away from God. Hira, the Adullamite, was a man of this world. He was a Canaanite man, which means he was almost certainly an idolater who worshipped the Canaanite gods, and he certainly lived the lifestyle of a Canaanite. The only real detail we are given about this man's character is that he's the one who tried to help Judah cover his tracks after Judah visited a woman whom he thought was a harlot. So that's the kind of friend Ira the Adulamite was to Judah. Yet the text is very clear that Judah regarded this man, Hira, as his friend. He calls him that specifically in verse 12. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua Judah's wife died, and Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shears to Timnath, he and his friend, Hira, the Adulamite. And in verse 20, And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from this woman's hand, but he found her not. It should also be clear about what it means in verse 1 that Judah turned in to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. That almost certainly means that Judah pitched his tent in Hira's lands. He packed up his tent, packed up his belongings, left his brothers, left his father's house, and he turned in to Hira the Adulamite, meaning he he pitched his tent where Hira lived or maybe even lived in the house of Hira the Adulamite. Almost like Hira was his family. This is Judah's new family. He's left, his father left, his brothers. Now Hira, the Adulamite, will be his friend. Now Hira, the Adulamite, will be his brother. A Canaanite, a man who knows nothing of God. While Judah was living with Hira, his eyes fell on a certain Canaanite woman. Evidently, this woman was very beautiful to Judah's eyes. According to verse 2, Judah saw her. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite. Doesn't say he delighted in her. Doesn't say he loved her. Doesn't say he sought her out as a wife in the Lord who would be a help meet to him. No, he saw her. And then he took her, and he went in unto her, and had three sons with her through this union. Now every commentary I read on this passage said that this was Judah's marriage to a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. And that could be, it could be that he actually married her. That could be the intention when it says that he took her, as in he took her to be his wife. Sometimes it says that. He took so-and-so to be his wife. But here it never says that in, in so many words. And we are never even told this woman's name. She's only called the daughter of Shua. And it makes me wonder whether Judah even bothered formally to unite himself to this woman in marriage. Or if she was more like a live-in girlfriend. Whether they were formally married or not, it's clear this relationship was a relationship based in lust. Judah did not seek the advice or blessing of his father Jacob in his relationship to this woman. He saw her. 
He saw her, and then he took her, and went in under her, and had sons with her. It's doubtful whether Jacob ever even met this woman. She stayed down there in Adullam, and then in Kizeb, which was another town close by. Not that Jacob was paying any attention anyway. Jacob at this time was spiraling deeper and deeper into his own self-pity. Nevertheless, this is an example of Judah striking out on his own, doing his own thing. What his eyes see, he will take. What he lusts after, he will have. He will marry or maybe even just live with whatever woman gives him pleasure, even a Canaanite woman, a woman of this world, an idolater, a heathen. And Judah did this knowing full well that he was acting contrary to the will of God. Judah was a son of Jacob, who was a son of Isaac, who was a son of Abraham. And Judah knew his family history. Judah knew that when Abraham wanted a wife for Isaac, Abraham specifically, intentionally, deliberately looked away from Canaan and from the women who were in Canaan. Abraham wanted a wife for his son who knew the true God, who worshipped him, who believed in him, who was a covenant daughter. And Isaac submitted to his father's wishes and received it as the will of God for him and for his marriage. Judah knew also what a grief of mind it was to his grandparents, Isaac and Rebekah, when his uncle Esau married Canaanite wives. According to Genesis 26, verse 35, these Canaanite wives, Judith and Bashamath, were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah, which is part of the reason why they sent Jacob to Padanaram, far away to the land of Haran, to find a wife who was not a Canaanite. Yet here Judah leaves his brethren, and he takes a Canaanite woman, and he goes in unto her and has sons with her. Knowingly, willfully, he acts contrary to the will of God. And God will not bless this union. God will not bless this union any more than Abraham would have blessed it, or Isaac would have blessed it, or Jacob would have blessed it had he been paying any attention. But Judah doesn't care. Judah's union to this woman is reflective of the state of his whole mind and heart and soul. He's the friend not of God. He's the friend not of the people of God. Not anymore. He's the friend of the world. He's uniting himself to its lusts, its pleasures, its pride. Now some people, some Christians even, think the Bible is an old dusty book that has little relevance to the real-world experience of Christians and the real dynamics that unfold in Christian families and in Christian lives. But how many times hasn't this exact scenario played out in the families of Christians today? This exact scenario that took place thousands of years ago, recorded in the book of Genesis, how often hasn't this exact thing not happened in Christian homes, and Christian families. A young person who grows up in the church begins to resent the rules and the lifestyle of the Christian family where he was raised. He sees weaknesses and defects in his father and mother and the other adult role models in the church. He begins to tell himself, well, these people are just a bunch of hypocrites. Why should I listen to any of them? Why should I follow their example? Then he pushes it, tests it, and he gets into trouble. He or she acts out in rebellion against the rules of dad and mom, gets caught drinking underage, gets caught smoking marijuana, starts dating unbelieving girls or unbelieving boys. And then there's a confrontation that results. 
things get heated, they blow up, and this confrontation only seems to confirm the opinion of this young person of hypocrisy. Why should I listen to them? Why should I follow these rules when I'm obviously so much smarter than they are? I know it's good for me. I know what will make me happy. I know what will make for a good life. And so away he goes. Or she goes. And lo and behold, when this young person leaves, leaves those who had been called his brethren, he finds a friend. Here in the world, a kindred spirit who finally sees the way, the things the way that I see them. This young person's own version of Hira the Adulamite. Oh, this man knows how to have a good time. This man knows how to make me feel good about myself. This, this person, this friend, doesn't make me feel so guilty all the time. He thinks it's crazy how I was raised, so backwards, so old-fashioned, so weird. Before long, this young person who grew up in the church becomes entangled in the world. He finds a woman who's attractive to him and takes her as a wife, or maybe just lives with her. And there are children who are born and raised, born and raised far from God, far from Jesus Christ. And if you were ever to enter the home of this man or this woman now grown up, you would never even know that this was a person who was born, raised, baptized as a friend of God. Because all of that has been carefully covered up, carefully concealed, carefully removed. It's a past life, effectively erased. And a new life has been embraced. A life of pleasure. A life of gratification. A life in union with the world instead of separation from it. But a life far from God. And a life far from the people of God. Do you recognize this story? Beloved people of God? Maybe it's your own story. Maybe you were like Judah once upon a time, headstrong and stubborn, thinking, of course, you know what's best for yourself, and living for a time far from God. Maybe you're like Judah right now. Even though you're technically sitting in a church building. But your heart is far from God. And is wrapped up in the world. It's pride, it's lust, it's pleasure. Or maybe you've seen this kind of thing play out in your family among your own sons and daughters. Maybe you're a parent who every day prays that your departed child, after all, will turn out to be a lost sheep, a Judah who wanders in unbelief for a time, but who will come back to the faith and to the Christian life in the end. But let's not say the Bible doesn't speak to our lived experience. And let's not say that the Bible doesn't understand or appreciate the real-life scenarios that we find ourselves in. Let's not say that human nature is any different today than it was in the day, days of Judah, in the days of Joseph, in the days of Jacob. This happens. This exact story happens. And when it happens, it always brings with it heartache and pain and suffering and misery. And this is the warning to any young person who contemplates following in the footsteps of Judah. And this is the warning to anyone sitting here tonight who is living as a friend of the world rather than as a friend of God. 
ye adulterers and adulteresses? Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 4, verse 4. Do not imagine that God will bless you if you go the way of Judah. He will not. He may painfully drag you back to your senses through the way of chastisement and through the way of great trouble in your life. He may systematically break down every aspect of your life until you turn back to him in repentance. He may pull you out of the fires of hell that are licking up to devour you as it were by the scruff of your neck. That's what had to happen to Judah, as we'll see. But God will not bless you in your union with the world any more than he blessed Judah when Judah lived among the Canaanites. If God is merciful to you, he will fight you. He will resist you. He will break you to pieces until you come to the end of yourself before finally putting you back together again, you young people. Playing with the world, entertaining its pleasures, entertaining its lifestyle as an alternative lifestyle to that of God's friends, is playing with fire. It is descending and descending into darkness. Consider yourself warned. The family we see developing from Judah then was clearly a family that was under judgment. While Joseph was a slave and then a prisoner in Egypt, Judah was in Canaan having children. There were three sons. The firstborn was named Ur. And there was Onan. And then there was Shelah. Shelah, who was the only one who survives long enough to have his own children and to find a place in the genealogy of Judah. But when Ur was old enough, Judah arranged a marriage to a woman named Tamar. We don't know much about Tamar. Almost certainly she was another woman from Canaan, like the daughter of Shua, and at the time at least, not a believer in the true God. In other words, Judah was all but ensuring that his own legacy and his own generations would be wrapped up in the world and he would be lost. The children of Judah, surprise, surprise, turn out to be wicked men of this world when they grow up. About Ur, with whom Judah arranged this marriage to Tamar, we just read that he was wicked in the sight of God. Verse 7. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. We're not told the exact nature of this wickedness. One of the commentaries speculates and says that he may have been a sexual pervert who was living in the sin of homosexuality. That would not be a stretch in light of the environment in which they were living, which was not far from the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were still smoldering with fire and brimstone. This was the nature of the Canaanites. might also explain why Ur did not have any children with Tamar so as to have an, uh, an heir. But whatever it was, whatever the nature of the wickedness, God saw it, He was displeased by it, and He did not allow it to go on for very long. But He struck him dead. And that's the last we read of Ur. Then Judah instructed his next oldest, to fill the role of a brother-in-law and to go into Tamar. Now this practice seems strange to us. It's unfamiliar, but in those days, this was the way 
to protect the legacy of a man who has died childless. The brother of the dead man would marry his widow and have children with her, and then the firstborn son of this marriage of the brother of the dead man and his widow, the firstborn, would be named as the heir of the man who died. In other words, what Judah is telling Onan to do is to have a child with Tamar, and this child will be given the rights of the firstborn son and heir of Judah. Judah is interested in preserving his legacy and keeping his legacy intact. Well, Onan agrees to marry Tamar and to go in under her. I imagine Tamar was a beautiful woman, and Onan was only too happy to have her as his wife and to enter into her bed. But he did not like the idea of having a son who would not be legally his son, but who would be legally the son of his brother and who would have the rights of the firstborn. Onan wanted those rights for himself. Onan wanted to pass those rights on in his own name to his own son, not in his brother's name. So in a deliberate act of sabotage, knowing that the seed would not be his, he spilled his seed on the ground. Now this is a scene that's a bit more graphic in the Bible than what we're used to. But just consider the nature of Onan's actions here from the perspective of what was going on in his heart. Onan wants the pleasure of having Tamar as his wife, including the gratification of having sex with her. But he could care less about Tamar. He could care less about Tamar's evident desire to have children. He could care less about his brother Ur or the posterity of Ur, whose name will now be lost. He could care less about his father Judah or Judah's legacy, and he could care less about God. There's one person Onan cares about, and that's Onan himself, his own pleasure, his own legacy, his own inheritance. See, the sin isn't just that Onan spilled his seed on the ground. It isn't even just that he tried to prevent having children as such or used a form of birth control as it would have existed in those days. The sin of Onan was hatred. The sin of Onan was that he loved nobody except for himself. And God saw right through this. He saw right through Onan. And just like he struck Ur dead, he struck Onan dead, displeased with his wickedness. The irony is that this is the one part of the story where Judah looks even remotely like he's trying to do the right thing. He's following the procedure of the Leveret Law that will later be written down in the book of Leviticus, we alluded to that in the sermon this morning. It's the law that comes up in the book of Ruth. Boaz, a descendant of Judah, will follow this same basic principle when he marries Ruth to raise up seed to Malon and for the house of Elimelech. When this practice was used rightly, it was a beautiful picture of redemption and mercy. But if Judah retains a memory of God and his ways, still in his heart and still in his consciousness and seeks to implement that memory of God in his ways with his sons. His sons, Ur and Onan, have no such memories and they have no such priorities. They were born and raised not in the tents of Jacob. They were born and raised in the tent of the daughter of Shua, the Canaanite. Judah's sons were raised as unbelievers, as heathen, And therefore they were judged by God as unbelievers and as heathen. Here's another real life scenario for us to consider. There's a man born and raised with the knowledge of God and the memory of God's ways who rebels in his youth walks away from it all. Yet he lives his whole life. And he lives his whole life enjoying the pleasures of the world. And then he has children. 
And those children grow up surrounded by the sights and the sounds and the images of this world. Maybe there are some token prayers offered in this house. Maybe the children are even taken to church. But their real teachers and role models are the actors and the athletes and the singers and the stars on television and in the media. And their real-life lessons are the lessons they learn from Disney World and from Netflix and from Amazon, which they absorb as a relentless stream of content is always coming in to their house, into their living room, into their bedroom, while dad is off, not paying attention, living life, having fun, enjoying the pleasures and the lusts and the pride of life in this world. But eventually, this man reaches an age where the world and its pleasures aren't as good as they used to be, and he starts to think about his children, and he starts to think about his legacy, and he starts to wonder what's going to happen to them. And he wants his children to have some character. He wants them to grow up a bit. He wants them to be, to be grounded in something. But what has, have his children become? As he was away, enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, well, they've become absorbed by the world. And far more absorbed by the world than ever he was. They know it's music. They know it's culture. And they find it far more attractive than any last-minute lessons the old man has for them. And just like that, they're gone. Gone. You can feel a certain kind of sympathy for a man like that. And there are many such men in the world around us today. Maybe sitting in church pews. Men who spend their twilight years in regret. As they watch their children making a wreck of their lives. You can have a certain sympathy. But you also have to say, what did you expect? Judah? What did you expect? Did you expect that these children raised among the Canaanites by a heathen Canaanite mother, absorbing its culture, taking in its sights and its sounds and its pleasures, did you expect that these sons would have any inkling about the ways of God? God is not mocked. What a man reaps, will he sow. What makes this whole episode even more horrific is that these sons perished. Ur and Onan, they perished outside of Christ. There was no redemption for them. Judah, in the end, will be redeemed by the skin of his teeth. But not Ur. Not Onan. And yes, this all fell out as the unfolding of God's sovereign decree of reprobation. But God realized that sovereign decree in time through the wickedness and the unbelief and the waywardness of their father, Judah, who was living away from God. And I say definitively, on the basis of the text, that there was no redemption for these sons, Ur and Onan. For this reason, it's not because they were greater sinners than other men. It's not because they failed to attain the righteousness that would have made them worthy so that God would have been pleased with them. There is no man who can attain such righteousness. There was no redemption for Ur and Onan because they perished 
apart from Christ. In the end, that is what their refusal to have children amounts to. It was a rejection not just of a command that their father gave them. It was a rejection not just of an earthly duty to have children, but it was a rejection of Jesus Christ. It was a rejection of the seed who would eventually be born from the Lion of Judah. It was a rejection of the Lion of Judah's tribe, the Redeemer of sinners and the Healer of wounds. If I may speak for a moment as a man, had Ur had a son with Tamar and carried on the generations of Judah, he would not have perished. Had Onan raised up seed in the name of Ur as Judah commanded, he would not have perished because that would have shown, that would have been evidence that these men had embraced Jesus Christ, had embraced Judah and the legacy that God was giving to Judah in his generations. But they did not embrace that. They rejected it. And they rejected the seed who would be born from Judah. I will not be the father of that person. They rejected the one name under heaven whereby men must be saved. And in their unbelief, they perished And what a weight that must have been on Judah's shoulders later on when he reflected on all of this. A weight that must have sat on his shoulders like David who cried out for his son Absalom. Absalom, Absalom, my son. Of course, it's not parents who save their children through their faithfulness, and through their rearing. Thank God. And it's not always parents who are responsible either when their children grow up and forsake the Lord and reject Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, there's a clear word to us as parents. Don't live for the world. Don't let that be the legacy that you leave to your children, that you are a father, you are a man who was consumed with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, united to the world, enjoying its pleasures, living among the Canaanites. Don't teach your children to live for the world, whether you do that out of your own mouth or whether you do that with your example. They will. They will. And they will embrace the world more than you ever did if that's how you raise them. And they will be far from Christ and far from eternal life. Now I wish I could say that Judah quickly changed his ways when he saw what happened to his sons. I wish he could say that at last he had sold his brother and experienced chastisement for that. He had left his brethren and gone and lived with the Canaanites and experienced chastisement for that. He took a Canaanite wife, raised his sons to live in the world, and he experienced chastisement for that. At last, I wish I could say, Judah's heart was softened. I wish I could say that the slaying of two sons was enough to bring him to rock bottom and repentance. But I can't say that. Oh, Judah noticed. He saw what happened to his sons. That they were dead. And he knew what? He knew who slew them. But whom does he blame? Does he really see? Does he realize and understand that God is bringing the consequences of his own actions back home to roost? Oh no. It's that woman. There's something wrong with her, that Tamar. She must be a witch or something. She must be defective somehow. 
Not that Judas said this to Tamar in so many words. To her, he says, remain a widow. Go live in your father's house. And I promise you, when my next son is old enough, Sheila, then you can marry him. But privately, this is his thought. This is my last son, and if I give him over to Tamar, he's going to die like the other two. In other words, it's Tamar's fault. It's not her. It's not his fault. It's not Onan. It's not my son's. Certainly it's not me. I'm not the problem in all of this. It's her. Now, Tamar is no innocent victim. And we'll soon find out enough about her. But Judah can't see it. He uses her like a shield to hide from his view the ugly truth which is that the primary bearer of responsibility in all of this is not Tamar. It's not even Onan or Ur. The primary bearer of responsibility is Judah. Judah, who left his brothers to go live in Adullam, to make friends with a wicked man of this world, Hira. It's Judah who took in his lust a Canaanite woman and raised his sons as unbelievers. It's Judah who sold his brother into slavery and fled from home on account of his guilty conscience. It's Judah, his fault. But he will not see it. He will not admit it. He will not own up to his guilt. No, it's not me. It's that woman, Tamar. In other words, the Judah we find here in verse 11 at the end of our text is a Judah who is in the grip of unbelief, who is himself, as far as his own experience of life is concerned, is living far from God and far from Jesus Christ. That ought to send a chill down our spines, beloved. For there to be such a clear Message of judgment sent by God that Judah would have to be blind not to see it, but he doesn't see it, refuses to see it, chooses instead to deflect, to blame somebody else. That speaks to our human nature. And it ought to send a chill down our spines. 1 Peter 4, verse 18 says, The righteous are scarcely saved. Let that sink in. Scarcely. Just barely. Not because God's arm is short. Not because God's power is only just up to the task of saving us. Well, the point is, this is how blind, this is how corrupt, This is how proud our human nature so often is. How natural unbelief comes to us, especially in a moment of confrontation, especially in a moment when God is bringing the consequences of our actions to bear on us. God, as it were, has to take us by the collar and drag us out of a burning building. Otherwise, we would run back in. Now Israel may say, and that in truth, if that the Lord had not our right maintained, if that the Lord had not with us remained when cruel men against us rose to strive, we surely had been swallowed up alive. The grace of God, beloved, That alone saves us, the grace of God. And until that grace comes and breaks down our pride and our stubbornness, we can't even see it. That was Judah, lost for many years and held in the grip of unbelief. That was Judah, living in the world as one with the world, 
among the Canaanites. Hear the story, beloved. Take the warning and take it to heart. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, thy word humbles us, exposing who and what we are by nature, breaking us down. It is thy grace and only thy grace that saves us. We pray, O Father, that having seen the story and having heard the instruction, that we will take the warning to heart and that we will not test Thee or tempt Thee as Judah did. We will not walk away from Thee or seek to hide from Thee. We pray for the grace, O Father, to live always before Thy face, to live in repentance and in faith in Jesus Christ alone as the only ground of our salvation. We pray, O Father, that though we are weak as parents, and though we do often fail and we give a poor example to our children, that nevertheless, Thou wilt not allow them to grow up as an Ur or as an Onan, that they may grow up to live before Thee and to serve Thee, to delight in Thy Son Jesus Christ and to seek redemption through Him. O Father, we are all beggars. This is the truth of our condition. We pray, show mercy. Lift us up from the dunghill. Make us to dwell as princes in Thy house. Forgive us and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake.